What's good, everyone? I'm Langston Clark, founder and organizer of Entrepreneurial Appetite, a series of events dedicated to building community, promoting intellectualism, and supporting Black businesses. In this episode of Entrepreneurial Appetite's Black Book Discussions, we feature a conversation with Kendra Barnes, founder of the Key Resource Real Estate and author of Acres, inspiring stories of 25 real estate investors who are normalizing Black wealth one acre at a time, and special guest host Kim Cameron, executive director of the North Carolina a and Real Estate Foundation. Thank you, Langston. So funny when uh, I agreed to do this, I thought Kendra and I were just going to serve on a panel together to talk about some real estate investment. And then I, look, I said, wait a minute, I'm hosting? I'm hosting something? What? What is going on? So we will enjoy this time. Just very quickly, I'm going to talk about myself and talk about the North Carolina A&T Real Estate Foundation. So I have been the executive director since 2019. So for three years, but I started out as the director of economic development for the Real Estate Foundation. So how that came about is most universities do have a university foundation. So that is typically a separate entity from the university, usually a 501c3 designation. So it has a charitable status and it's what is deemed as an associated entity. That associated entity will have a board of directors that governs that entity. As the executive director, I report to that board of governors. And so we are affiliated with the university but not under the university umbrella. So if you think about a university and how it's formed, it has a provost that usually handles the academics. I don't report up through a provost or it may have other staff related vice chancellors like IT, business and finance, which is accounting, advancement, things like that. I really don't report up through that line either. So a and did have a university foundation that was founded in 1946. University foundations typically handle endowments. They raise money. They serve as the entity to receive grants, research grants that professors write, scholarship funds, and other, other items that may not fit under the university umbrella again. Chancellor Martin came on, Chancellor Harold Martin came on as the chancellor and he's a he's an Aggie, you know, he went to undergrad and I believe grad and then he went and got his PhD elsewhere. But he came on as a very, a very, very real visionary and created the preeminence 2020 plan. So he came on in 2009 and shortly after that, he created his vision, his vision and called it the preeminence 2020 plan. And that was the vision to grow the university just about where we are now, almost 13,000 students. I think the goal was 14,000. And with that, you have to increase amenities and services. You have to increase the footprint of the university. You have to, and that is buying land, building more buildings and doing other things. Most, you know, a lot of HBCUs in particular, when they have to do that, they may buy land, but they won't build and own the real estate on top, especially if it's housing. Now, if it's an academic building, they will do that. But if it's housing, a lot of times they go out for what is called a P3, a public-private partnership. And what happens with that is that they'll go out, they'll hold an RFP, 
for um, a real estate developer and that our that developer then will build that that structure and own that structure and then they'll master lease meaning they lease all every single bed on a master lease out to the university so then the university pays for that real estate who gets that who gets that income and who gets that equity that developer the university benefits nothing from that so ant being ant right we're going we're going to keep all that in the family so because the foundation is a private entity we're going to be the private partner of the university. And in order to do that, we, but we need a real estate focus. So we need a, we need to be a real estate company. And so the name in, in 2014, a process started with the board, the name changed, the, vi- the vision changed, the vision statement changed, the mission statement changed, and the board members changed and the bylaws changed. So pretty much a new entity was created. And then in 2016, strategic plan started, lasted for three years. And um, out of that strategic plan was that director of economic development position that was created. And that, again, is to, again, most HBCUs, unfortunately, are in the hood. Uh, neighborhoods have received decades and decades of nothing, really had disinvestment going on. And so ANT as the anchor institution of East Greensboro, again, Chancellor Martin had the vision as anything is going to happen in East Greensboro, ANT is going to have to make it happen. And so that director of economic development position was created to start looking at what type of investments we could make in the neighborhood to bring services and amenities, not only to the university, but to the whole entire community for job creation and to drive and for ANT to be an economic driver. Um, so I came on board as that. And then shortly after that, the executive director director retired and and then I became the executive director. Since that time, I've grown the, the staff. We've doubled in size. I have hired a staff that have real estate, commercial real estate experience. The board also, too, I've been on the mission of growing the board with folks that also have commercial financing, uh, real estate development experience, advocacy experience, things like that. And so that's just been three years I've been at it. We now own 215 million dollars of assets. Our annual rent is about 28 million dollars worth. And we are not done. We are acquiring two more apartment complexes in September. When that happens, we'll pretty much own all the apartment complexes that surround the university. And then we're embarking on a mixed-use development called the Resurgent, um, which is one phase of revisioning redoing East Market Street. The first phase is going to be on Bimbo and Market. It's going to have retail, about 13,000 square feet of retail, 80 to 107 apartments. We're trying to work out the numbers. Y'all know the market is crazy as hell right now. This is the hardest part. And a parking deck and a three-story office building to start out with the first two floors occupied by Cone Health. The third floor will be the North Carolina A&T East Greensboro Entrepreneurial Hub. And then the fourth floor, the Real Estate Foundation is going to move off campus and occupy that because we don't need to be on campus and we can free up office space for folks that need to be on campus proper. The beauty of the Cone Health Partnership is that this the census track is in a medically underserved and primary care underserved census track, meaning people there's no there's no doctors. <laughs> there's no doctors in East Greensboro. There's no doctors to go to and people don't have primary care. Uh, that's one of the inequities of the hood. Right. And so a Cohen Health coming over and taking up those first two floors will help solve for that problem. The other beauty part of Cohen Health going over there is that we have a nursing school and we're developing a physician's assistance program. So those students will be able to get clinical hours across the street from the university. They won't have to go across town to a hospital 
or to doctor doctor's offices. They can go directly across the street to receive that those clinical hours. The Entrepreneurial Hub will be supported by the Willie A. Dees College of Business, the Center of Excellence, that is the entrepreneur uh, entrepreneurship innovation. It will also it will be up to open to students and the community. Um, this College of Agriculture will also support it. The farm has new pavilions, new classrooms. And so people can go over at the farm, learn about food processing or food chain businesses, learn that technical part, but come over to the entrepreneurial hub and get the business part that they need for their business. So that's just the first phase. I've been working on this, I would say, going hard at it for the past two years. We acquired the land July 23rd. 2021. I know that date at 1 p.m. because I probably cried for like 20 minutes because it was real then. I was making something happen for HBCU that nobody has pretty much done before. So I've been able to use all of my experiences working for other development companies, majority owned and black owned. I worked for H.J. Russell Company for a while and other places to bring all of that experience, cumulative experience and bring it over to A&T and benefit A&T. So my undergraduate degree is in construction management. Firstly, I didn't go to A&T. I went to Wisconsin, but it's another land-grant university, and I have an MBA in a finance concentration. So that's me very quickly. And so I'm going to transition to Kendra and have her introduce herself and talk about the key resource. Thank you, Kim. This was so awesome to hear. So hey, everybody, I'm Kendra, founder of The Key Resource. I'm an Aggie. I actually majored in agricultural economics while I was at A&T, which is like so random when people hear it. Long story how that happened. But I ended up retiring from my nine to five job. I actually worked as an international economist for the Department of Agriculture for 10 years. But real estate investing allowed me to be financially free. And so now I'm able to do full time what I love, which is invest in real estate, but also inspire and empower Black people to invest and build wealth as well. Kim, why the reason I loved Everything you said is because I often look back to my time at A&T and I'm like kicking myself because I didn't know about investing in real estate back then. And even if I had known about it, I don't think I would have thought it was something that I could do. Like a young person, a young black woman, someone who didn't have great spending habits. It seemed like really unattainable to me. But I look back and think, I wish someone had told me to buy a house right outside of A&T back then because I could have, I could have gotten it for dirt cheap. And I also think about like, why didn't people's parents buy houses, you know, buy the house and like let people live in, you know, their kid lives in it. Other rooms are rented out. That house can make money for those students, you know, for years to come once they get into the career field. And so thinking back, but it's so awesome to see the A&T is like, no, we're going to own what's around the school because why not? And so I'm pretty sure the apartment building that I lived in when I was at A&T, once I moved off campus, you guys probably own that. I don't even know. I forgot what it's called now, but it's literally walking distance from campus. I'm sure A&T will scoop that up. That's so odd. Something, something estates or something. I don't even remember. I have to, I have to think of what it was. But um, yeah, so a little back to my background. I started the key resource to basically be what I needed when I started investing in real estate. I feel like representation wasn't very strong, you know, in, on the online space. You couldn't get on Instagram. You There were no podcasts. There were no webinars like this back then where you saw people that looked like you, you know, as a young black or brown person that was, hey, I'm investing. You can do it too. And I know representation is so important. And so I've been sharing my story, but one of my biggest passions is also shining a light on the stories of others in this space, because 
the way I do things is, is one way. You know, some people have other experiences. Some people invest differently, come from different backgrounds. And so I've just always gotten so much joy of saying, hey, here's someone else doing this and get, you know, get what you can from their story. And so I recently self wrote and self-published a book called Acres. And it is a coffee table book that is telling the stories of 25 young Black investors that have built wealth from the ground up with real estate. It's full of beautiful pictures, imagery, and also the powerful stories. And I really see it as Black history. I kind of liken it to back in the day, those encyclopedias, if everyone on this call is old enough to remember encyclopedias, all the different volumes, my plan for this book, this is just the first one, but there are so many stories to tell. I really want people young or old, but I'm, I'm literally, I'm imagining students at a and I'm imagining kids coming up in school, being able to look at these books and say, oh, if this person could do it, I can do it too. And to know that not only are they worthy of wealth, but they have everything they need inside them to be successful at it. And so that's a little bit about me, about the book and about what I do at the key resource. But I am just so excited to have learned. I didn't know any of that was going on at AT. And so thanks. Thank you for sharing that. I had a question. Can I ask a question? I don't know how this is supposed sure. to go, but <laughs> where does the funding come from for for the real estate uh yeah, you said the exact so, name and now I've forgotten it. <laughs> the Real Estate Foundation, just say it like that. The Real Estate Foundation, yeah. where's the funding coming from? So we are not on state appropriations. I like to describe we eat what we kill. So we are completely entrepreneurial and all of our money comes from our operations, right? So it just really quickly and just maybe it's a lot, it's fascinating to a lot of people. We have the Real Estate Foundation, Inc. That is the parent company. The parent company is the sole member of another LLC. That LLC was created back in 2004 to own a residence halls. So that LLC owns Aggie Suites ENF, Pride Hall. It owns the Alumni Foundation Event Center. So that's where our offices are at right now. And that's where the Alumni Foundation sits as well. And then the event center is in there. People rent it to hold events. So that's a profit center. And then the Child Development Center, which is basically across the parking lot from the event center. And then just on Bimbo and Market, East Market Street, there's an old, just nondescript apartment complex that that was built in like 1984 is just it's very ugly it's called Aggie Terrace we own that as well so that was the first venture into real estate we own a couple of warehouses and then in 2018 is when we started purchasing the apartments so the first apartments were we call them the points I don't know what they used to be called I think they're part of Riverwalk they're the garden style apartments we renamed them one is Aggie Point and the one the other one is Preeminent Point so that's like on a north northwest side of campus over by the stadium. And then the the south side of campus, the south camp, that's what is across East Market Street. So in 2019, then we purchased Campus Edge. And I'm sorry, let me back up. So we created another LLC to own the off-campus apartments, right? So the one LLC owns those on-campus things. And the way we own it is we actually land lease the land from the university and then we own the property on top and get, you know, get those housing revenues. South side of campus, we own Campus Edge, Collegiate Commons, and Sebastian Villages, which consists of Sebastian Village, Sebastian Courtyard, and Sebastian Place. Sebastian is the big daddy, I call it, because it's 840 beds by itself. Campus Edge is 108 beds, Collegiate Commons is 324, 
324 beds. And so we almost own 2,000 beds of student housing. Now that area over there on South Campus is almost like a little village, right? Because it's a, all of it is student apartments over there. We don't, with the only apartment complex we don't own over there is University Landing. I just signed the LOI for that. Monday, the letter of intent. So that's when we plan on closing in September. We'll own everything over there. Since that time, we've also started a branding, a branding plan, and we call it Aggie Apartment Life. We have a logo. And so we're good, you know, we got t-shirts printed up and we'll start just a whole campaign about that, right? Because love our Aggies, but we got to teach these children how to live on their own because they just don't know, you know, we, and so we, we're, we're, you know, we're starting a series of TikTok videos to educate them. Wow. You, know, you, you do rental, right? So the worst thing you want is somebody coming in, tearing up your junk, right? Because it costs you Man. money to turn that over. And the, the, right? crazy thing, the crazy thing is a lot of times when tenants might do things to tear your place up, it's not because they're bad people. It's a lot of times lack of knowledge. And yep. when I was at ANT, I honestly thought I was grown. Now that I'm grown, grown, <laughs> I'm like, oh, I was a kid. I yeah. honestly, my mom let me just live out here. That's interesting. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, that, that education piece is so big because I remember we had a tenant one time, we had this $800 plumbing bill. We couldn't figure out what in the world was going on. Come to find out, she didn't know that you're not supposed to pour bacon grease down the sink every morning. She's like, oh, I make bacon. I make a pan of bacon every morning. And she was literally pouring that grease and it built up and like ruined the pipes and stuff. And she wasn't a bad person, but that was a bad bill that we had, you know? So that education is so important. And that's what we're trying to embark on, right? And, you know, back probably when we went to school, we would read things, you know, these, they, they don't like to read email. They don't like to read text messages. They want everything on Instagram. Twitter and TikTok. So that's what we're going to go do to reach them. We've created some videos that like are 30 seconds each. Hopefully they'll watch them. But actually, too, what we're doing is we've we've taken all those videos and we're going to turn them into a training. So before mm-hmm. you get your key to get into the apartments in August, you have yeah. to have to watch all those videos, took a wow. quiz and passed. And <laughs> you don't, you're going to have to go back in your car, you, your mama, your daddy. And your grandma too, right? <laughs> in the words of outcast, you're gonna have to go back to the car, get on your phone, and go in and take that because you are not moving in until you wow. until you do that. Because you got to protect your asset. And so it's really cool. But there's also a lot to be learned from what ANT has done in regards to real estate and ownership. I thought that when you were saying we have this structure, we got this LLC, we're doing this letter of intent. A lot of kids are going through college not understanding that I was one of them. So I just think that's so cool. I don't even know how that could be incorporated. Do people actually realize what ANT is doing and how big that is for an HBCU to have the foresight and the resources to do that? Not all schools are doing that. Right. People at even that are on faculty and staff really don't know what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, the good, the the awesome thing that we've done now since I've come on board is that last year we had six interns last school year. And so my first intern three years ago from when I started, I called him the OG intern. He was the first professional hire for Trammell Crow Residential in Raleigh. And that is because he, I, I let him come to all my meetings. I sat down and explained some documents to him. He, he asked me about the lingo. So he may not have actually done it. I may have, you know, I had him do some grunt work, like research zoning, research zoning from tell me which zoning you think we should go, go for, you know? So he was exposed. 
to all of this. So when he was able to interview, he was able to interview intelligently, you know, and and be able to get that job to be a development associate with Trammell Crow. So that's the contribution that we're we're doing. You know, we're getting as many interns in as possible through the school year. We're thinking about developing a class, a commercial real estate class for the school of business that we'll teach as well. But look, we're supposed to be talking about your book. We're talking about real estate. So I'm going to transition. All right. Yes. What gave, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to pick out some questions. Okay. So what? Again, just tell us real quick, what gave you the inspiration to write this book? Yes. So the title is Acres. And that's the measurement of land. And mm-hmm. it's kind of paying homage to, not kind of, it is paying homage to the idea of 40, 40 acres and a mule. We all know that was the really elusive promise. And there's a whole bunch of history there that I think a lot of people believe that every freed Black person was promised 40 acres and a mule. It honestly wasn't that widespread. And It was what really happened was there was like a small town in Georgia where a small population of free black slaves were promised 40 acres and a mule. But the white people that promised the black people that land, it was land they didn't even own. And so after the war, once the soldiers came back that actually owned that land, they actually then kicked the black people off the land. And so they were promised land that wasn't really theirs got kicked off the land, whole thing. So I think growing up, I always heard 40 acres and a mule and thought, oh, we were all promised this and like Mm -hmm. no one got it. Either way, 40 acres and a mule always kind of brings to mind this idea of reparations or us being compensated in any sense, right? For all of the pain, suffering, the free labor, everything we did to build this country up and how we got left behind in ownership. And ownership is the cornerstone of wealth, right? Owning something. But so many Black families were left out of that for so long because of lack of access, information, all kinds of stuff. So I named the book Acres because we were denied all of this for so long. But the good thing is that now here are these people who are doing it anyway, despite all the systematic oppression, all of the things that were put in our way to fail. Look at these Black people who did not hit the lottery. No one left us an inheritance, did not get 40 acres and a mule, but we're we're building it on our own. And so that's where the name came from. I, like I said, I always want to share other stories. And so ever since I had an Instagram, I was always sharing other investor stories. I started hosting online webinars. Hey, let's all just get together and teach as many people as we can and spread the word. And then I thought like, why not put this in a book? And then I thought, why not make the book also art? So people can see. So it's not just words, which words on a page are powerful, but let's also show our faces. Let's also stand on the land we own. How how awesome would that be? And so that's kind of where the idea came from. Great. So so I read the book and there are awesome stories in there. Right. And it's not like a how to book. Right. But it's people's stories of how they got started. What was that? paradigm shift or what, you know, in their thinking or that pivotal shift. And, you know, so, so let's just discuss that real quick, because it sounds, you know, reading it, the, to me, the majority of the, the folks that you featured had some type of full-time job mm-hmm. at first. Some still do. Some treat the real estate investment as a side hustle. So yeah. 
Some took the leap and said, I'm, we going 10 toes in, right? And we're going to make this work. So, you know, if, if we have anybody that's listening, that's trying to do that, what advice would you give them to make that leap? Yes, I love that question. And I want to say too, disclaimer, if anyone's like, how should you read the book? And it's still not even out yet. It's still <laughs> for, it's for pre-order now. But for this discussion, I did give Kim and Langston a digital copy so that we could actually have a, a fruitful discussion. But it's in production now and it'll be shipping in August. Anyway, yeah, that's what I love about everyone's stories is they're all so different. A lot of people did start with that nine to five job, except for I think one girl, she was investing straight out of college. But the advice I would give anyone wanting to invest today and trying to figure out like, how does that play into like working nine to five is work your nine to five as long as you can, because it's really hard to buy real estate without that consistent paycheck. And just make sure you start with like an end goal in mind. Because I think one of the questions I always get, well, like how many rental properties do I need so I can leave my nine to five job? And the answer is, I don't know. Like, (laughs) first of all, what's your goals? What are your goals? And how do you get to that goal based on where you live? Because let's say, for instance, you're in Greensboro and you need to make, I don't know, $8,000 a month to be able to live off of your real estate investments. I'm just making that number up. How many properties do you need in Greensboro to do that? That's going to be different than how many properties you would need in DC or LA or Baltimore or Chicago. So there's no magic number. It really depends on where you are and where you're trying to get to, where you are, your location, where you can invest, where you're investing and what's your number, what's your financial freedom number. And so I think my biggest Two biggest tips are to start with an end goal in mind. And then whenever you start investing, make sure you put yourself in a position to pivot because as we all know, things happen, pandemics, recessions, all kinds of stuff. You want to make sure that when you're buying a property that you can easily pivot and still be profitable. If you identify a property and say, oh, I'm going to rent that out to some students at A&T and I know the numbers are great. What happens if you don't get those student tenants like you thought because something better comes up? Can you rent it on Airbnb and still make money? Can you rent it to travel nurses, military people, hospital, you know, workers, grad students? You have to make sure the numbers, the numbers work in in several different scenarios so you can pivot and still be profitable. Those are my two tips. Great. <laughs> it's a lot. So, I'm going to ask you some technical questions because that's me. You know, we're 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 real. We, we know real estate and they, they talk about the concept of wholesaling in there. Can you briefly explain to our audience what is wholesaling? Yeah, wholesaling is basically you're playing matchmaker. <laughs> you're finding someone who has an urgent need to get rid of a property mm-hmm. for money. They might need money or they're going through a divorce or someone passed away. They don't want the property. They just want to make a quick buck. And then you're finding an investor who's looking for a deal. You're matching them up and then you're taking a fee for making the match. So wholesaling is really cool because you don't necessarily need any money to do it. You're not actually buying the property, but you are making money for making a connection. So you're saying, Hey, I see you have this property. I want to buy, I want to get it under contract at this price. That person's agreeing to it. And then you're finding an investor who's going to buy it. You're going to mark it up a little bit to make your fee for making that connection. I love, I love wholesaling because you don't need money and you don't need good credit to do it because you're not buying anything. And so a lot of people will start out wholesaling to build up their capital to then buy properties. But with wholesaling, you need a lot of time because you have to find the properties, convince the seller to go with your price to go with you, know all the intricacies of making that connection. And then you have to make sure you have buyers 
who will, you know, buy that property once you make that connection. And so I think it does take a lot more time. Mm -hmm. So one of my good friends always says that you need time, knowledge and money to invest in real estate, but you don't personally need all three at the same time. So you might not have the knowledge or the money to do everything, but you have a lot of time and you can partner with someone who has the other two or you might not have time, but you got tons of money and you want to make that money, make money. Right. And so you can partner Mm -hmm. with people to stretch what you do have and make it work for you. Okay. Hey everyone, thank you again for your support of Entrepreneurial Appetites Black Book Discussion. Beginning this season, we are inviting our listeners to support the show through our Patreon website. The founding 55 patrons will get live access to our monthly discussions for only $5 a month. Your support will help us hire an intern or freelancer to help with the production of the show. Of course, you can also support us by giving us five stars, leaving a positive comment, or sharing the show with a few friends. Thank you for your continued support. So to do health selling, do you need a real estate license? Because how do you get your fee? You sign a contract with the with the investor? And, yes. Okay. So you sign a contract with the the seller, but you don't need a license in most states. I can't remember. I think it was Illinois or was it Ohio? Mm-hmm. One of those states recently did make it so that you needed a license, but for most states, you don't. Okay. I can't remember if there's any other states, but so you should definitely check that. But for most real estate investing, you don't need a real estate license. No. Okay. So what's what's your feelings on, you know, hard money lenders, right? Because prior to the financial cr- crash in mm-hmm. 2000. Seven, right? That was 2007. I try to block it out my mind because I lived in Atlanta at that time and it hit Atlanta hard, right? Yes. I, was, I was doing some personal real estate at that time and hard money lenders were that big, were all the rage because you could just get, get money easy. It was expensive, but you can get money and do what you need to do. They're, they've made a comeback now a little bit. I don't think they're all the rage as much anymore, but good, bad and different, good way to start to get into investing or, you know, how, what's your feeling on them? Yeah. People usually use hard money lenders for flips because the interest rates are so high. So if you're flipping, if you're going to use it for, I mean, no matter what you use it for, you got to have a really solid exit strategy. But in the book, I don't know if you saw the one where the couple was flipping and wholesaling in Atlanta and they lost everything. Mm -hmm. They said at the height of their run in Atlanta, they were making 60k a day sometimes they were you know they they came from the hood they were going mm-hmm. getting all that money out the bank throwing it all around their bed swimming in <laughs> like you see in a music video and I, I've, I've known this couple for a long time they they actually recovered they have this amazing story where now they're back on top but they had never seen that much money right and they're they they said they bought three cars all the same exact color just living crazy had all this debt and yeah they were making a lot of money but as soon mm-hmm. as it went downhill they didn't have any exit strategy mm-hmm. lost everything homeless cars repossessed the rags to riches back to rags mm-hmm. and then and then back up so i think it can be really dangerous if you don't have a solid exit strategy and if you don't really know what you're doing that's why mentorship mm-hmm. is so important really too when you're getting started mm-hmm. Yeah, I had friends in Atlanta when that happened. I had one friend, she probably had like 13 houses. Another friend, she had some quads or whatever. And that crash hit and all both of them lost everything. Mm-hmm. She said it, both of them said it was like all of their tenants got laid off at the same mm-hmm. time. And I exposed them, I said, so what would you do, do differently? 
you know, because because my one friend, she said she went through sixty three thousand dollars worth of savings trying to pay the mortgages on her houses to keep them going. Yeah. And both of them said they would look better on how to diversify, get different real estate investment, get different tenants in there, you know. But it's like when the highs are high, you you, you know, you're not even thinking about let me let me look at this rainy day. Let me see what I got to do, you know, and and that's hard. And like you said, I think that's a part of of mentorship that we need, even though those friends that you talked about, you know, another part of investing is maybe not all real estate. Maybe you got to go put some stocks and bonds in there too. That's a part of diversification. It's just not, let me, let me invest my money all in one thing. Yeah. You know, cause yeah, that's, that's all I'm going to say about that. (laughs) No, that's a good point. Cause I was, and you talk about diversification with your different real estate properties. People always want to talk bad about section eight, but when it comes to recessions, the pandemic, all that stuff, section eight was still paying. Landlords that had section eight tenants were not missing rent. And so for us, we've always tried to make sure we have a little bit of everything going on for that reason. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So let's think about, let's think about today's environment is real estate is ultra uber competitive right now. Oh, it's right? It's off the chain, off the chain. So we already talked about us as black folks. We already have all these barriers to entry if it was a normal day and it's not normal right now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how does one how how does one get started now? Because it's it's so hard. It's so expensive right now. I mean, there's so many different things. I think that even if you can't afford to get started right now in this market, you can't afford to start learning. You can start, you can afford to start making connections and you don't even have to, you don't have to buy a property to be an investor. That's one way, but you can invest in real estate investment trusts. I invest in those too. It's, it's almost like if you were to go online and invest in a stock that pays dividends, but you're investing in real estate hospitals, shopping malls, mm-hmm. and you're making money on the appreciation. You're also making money via dividends. So I, I love that type of investing. You can be a private investor. One of the investors in the book in Acres, I know he was talking about how he got really a lot of momentum once some private investors who actually went to school with him were like, hey, I got 10,000, you know, 20,000 in my savings. I'll make it work with you. And so mm-hmm. you can also be a lender to those who who are out there investing right now and make your money that way. So many ways to really get, that's why I love real estate. There's so many ways to get in and you don't have to have a lot of money first. Like you can, that's why it's called building. (laughs) You're building wealth because you don't have to be rich first. Awesome. Oh, and I think one of the one of the investors that's in the book is actually on here now. Oh, okay. (laughs) I was going to ask you, so tell me, Tell me your two favorite stories in the book and why they're your favorite stories. That is really hard. Um, (laughs) I think the one that we were talking about where they like lost it all, because a lot of times social media does glamorize investing, period, stocks or being a business owner. Like it's all roses. It's not all the time, but talking about like how they lost it all. And, they were, and I think their story is actually really funny and just like relatable to I'm just literally imagining them throwing all this money up in the air. And it's it's hilarious to me. But I, I really can't. 
I love them all. When I read through the book, sometimes tearing up because this is so powerful, so many different backgrounds. One thing that I've noticed though, it's a thread in every single story is at the end of it, there's like these words of wisdom. So there's a story, there's pictures, mm-hmm. and there's a page where it's like words of wisdom. And there's almost this consistency throughout for all 25 where they're take action, bet on yourself, experience is the best teacher. It's that that common thread. And so I love that because one, nobody listened to anyone else's interview and they don't even know who else is in the book. I've, I haven't even released that to anyone. And so you talk about investors who are all over the country in different places, invest different ways, and they're all saying the same thing. Experience is the best teacher. Believe in yourself. Don't get analysis paralysis. And so I thought that was, that's really dope too. How did you find the folks to feature in the book? Instagram. These are my Instagram friends. So back in the day when I was first, yeah, when I was first investing, what I would do is I would see another young black person investing. I would literally DM them. Hey, can I share your story on my page? My audience would love to hear about it. I developed these friendships. And next thing you know, me and several of these investors were traveling together. We were going to conferences, going on vacations together. They were at my baby shower. We just became friends. And I just kept adding on to that. And so then I would just, I just contacted them. Hey, do y'all want to be in this book? And they're always down for my crazy ideas. So this was one of them. And I'm, I'm really appreciative that they are willing to make history with me. My, what I'm speaking out into the atmosphere is that Oprah herself is going to see this book and have it in her hands one day. And so I really feel like we're making history telling good Black stories. We always hear so many negative things about Black people in the media when there's honestly so much good going on. So right. You're in the book, you're going to hear stories about people, like I said, that literally grew up in the hood to to owning dozens and dozens of properties. You're going to hear stories about people who went to college, did the government job thing, did the regular, the nine to five thing, and then got financially free. There's a couple in there who they live in California and it was too expensive. So they just picked a random state on the map. They were just this one. And it happens to be Greensboro. And they started investing. They'd never been to Greensboro. They don't know anything about Greensboro. They're like, all right, we'll invest there. And so just really interesting trajectories that everybody took. It's it's really, really cool. Right. What do you want people to take away most from this book, your readers? What is the most important message you want them? I know you've said experiences is the best teacher. (laughs) Anything else besides that as a message? I think just the beauty of it all. I want people to see themselves reflected in these stories. That's what's most important. And that's why what you'll find in in the book is everyone in there is not some mega real estate investor who has $40 million in real estate, though some of them are building massive developments. There's someone in there who owns one property. And I think her story is unique because she bought a rental property before buying a house for herself. She's living in her parents' basement, but Mm -hmm. bought a property. And I think that's beautiful, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever works for you and your goals. So I want everyone to see themselves represented. I want them to walk away knowing that if anyone in this book can do all these things, that they can do it too. And I, I really wanted the book to be art. I just think the stories are really beautiful and I'm humbled that I get to tell them and that I get to tell so many more after this too. Awesome. Before I forget, I got to recognize my my people. Some, some of my team members from the Real Estate Foundation are on here. 
Dimitri, Sharon, Darlene, Jacqueline. That's, I call them my girl gang, gang, gang. So, I, you know, we don't mess with each other because we will come get you. I so love that. We look out for each other. I love that. Y'all are doing real estate foundation. Too. That's awesome. <laughs> Kendra, I read the book and there were some interesting themes and you, you touched on this already. I think the, one of the most powerful things about your book is that it does myth destruction. I work in higher ed as an academic. And I think a lot of times academics, we always highlight a black misery. This is not a book about black misery. This is not a book about how black people got swindled through real estate or are failing in real estate. Here are some of the myths. And I I, I want you to speak to them, if you will. One, there's a myth that black folks don't have families that will support them. Almost every single person in there leaned on a family member or a spouse to get it done. And I, I thought the most amazing thing was, and this this is a stereotype we have a black woman, black women can't can't get married. And so mm-hmm. I would see a picture of the other woman. I had to confront my own stereotypes. Like, oh, I was like, that's an independent single black woman doing all on her own. And and the narrative starts off as I, 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 but then you get to the middle of it's we, yeah, we, <laughs> we. And then I had to think about if that was a dude up there, would I have made an assumption about his ability to be able to get yeah, that's so good. there's some there's some latent things going on there about the book that I don't know if you were intentional about, but they're still very powerful. And, it's, and to me, it's part of the artwork that's yeah. woven into how the book is done. So if you could speak about how the myth destruction beyond just the fact that black people can't build wealth, but those other things yeah. the book speaks to. I actually thought about that and I'm so glad you guys saw it and because I'm so close to it and I've been looking at this for it's been a process of over two years. I didn't even talk about self-publishing and the beast that it is to publish a book in a pandemic and a supply chain crisis That's a whole other discussion. But there are some women, like you said, in the book who you their brand and like how they invest, they're doing it by themselves, but they're married. And you would expect like, well, where's her husband at? Like this and that. But and there's there's some married guys in there, too, who kind of I'm not saying they do it on their own, but you'll see the story from them, you know, from their point of view only. But I think it is so cool to see these powerful black women who are the main investor in their household, because that's not something that you would ordinarily see. And even for my brand, I get that a lot because my husband and I, we invest together, but he's not on social media. He doesn't do these webinars with me and stuff like that. He's a really behind the scene guy. Scenes guy. And so people were like, well, what's that about? Like, are you married? Like what's going on? Cause it's, you know, this expectation or perception of what people think things should look like. So I'm glad you point that out. I know you don't have a favorite person in the book, but I think I, I think I have two stories that are my favorite. Let me so know what is it. I think Gabrielle Williams. She talked about her son being born with oh, yeah. elemental delays and getting fired from her job, and all yeah. of this stuff happened at the same time. That was one of my favorites. Yeah, that was um, amazing. It was. Was that one of the ones that made you cry a little bit when you read that one? Do you get like a little? Talking to her, I was losing my breath. Like these all started as audio interviews mm-hmm. that were like pages and pages long. Like I got them transcribed to page like 40 pages. And then I parsed it down and made it into like a flowing story. So that's where the two and a half years comes from. Conversations on the phone with these people. And when I first heard that, I'm like, as a mom, I'm like, wait, what? So yeah, that was really powerful. And another, the other, the other story that I like with Jeremy Johnson. And he's so cool. It was Man, he, I think he had the best quote. And so... Quotes are, you follow him on Instagram. His quotes are beyond. Okay. I can't, I don't even know how. I'm like, how do you come up with this stuff? 
<laughs> so I'm not I'm not going to ruin like I'm not going to spoil any more of the stories, but I do. I'm going to paraphrase one of Jeremy's quotes. He says something like he was he was like before integration. Yes. We define equal as you got a bus. I got a bus. I remember you that. Got a school. I got a school. Then integration happens and it's like, let me sit at the front of your bus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so to me, that was, I think at some point, whether whether they explicitly thought about it that way or not, every person yeah. in the story has something like that that's going on. It's, it's, it's not it's not about staying in the mainstream. It's not even about the mainstream. It's just about having your own financial freedom. Yeah. And, and the way that people defined wealth wasn't yeah. in some cases necessarily even about money. It's about just having your time back. And so oh, yeah. I, I thought it was powerful. Definitely. Yeah, I love that quote. I love that quote. I really appreciate you guys' feedback on it too. That's so cool to hear what you got from it. Did I miss any other questions? So there is one question from Heather in the chat. So I'm going to, I'm going to paraphrase and she's saying she's uh, got an investor group and was able to do some private lending. She wants to know what are your best practices for screening potential customers outside of her, her immediate group that she has there. Wait, I'm sorry. Repeat. So she's looking for private lenders. So I think, I think she has a group that she's working with. Private lending. But she's looking for people outside of that group to do business with. Yeah, she wants to invest. She wants her private lending group to invest in other projects. And how does she screen those potential customers? I actually don't have experience with that, Heather. I'm sorry. I don't know. Kim, do you have any experience? Um, I, I think that that they need to do. So I used to work for a bank, so I'll put on my banker hat. One of my least favorite jobs I've had in my lifetime. <laughs> That you just need to develop some some underwriting criteria. And really the easiest way, if you're not going to invest on the real estate itself, you can invest on the cash flow. So what cash flow, if, if a person has disposable income, how does that translate over into how much they can pay you back? Or you need to look at whatever project they're working on and what is that potential for that project to stay afloat. And even if something happens to that project, can can you invest in that, that person and they can just pay back? So, for instance, there was a gentleman in Durham who owned group homes. So that was his real estate investment, right? He bought houses and then he kind of chopped them up for group homes. And then he wanted to get into some more, some commercial investment. And he bought a property on the corner of Driver and Angier in Durham. And it had, it was the old school mixed use, right? You know, right up there on the sidewalk, retail on the bottom, and then either office or apartments up top. And he was just looking for a small loan, about $350,000 to renovate it to be able to, to lease it out. And based upon his income from his other properties and his job, he was a lawyer, he could pay that back, no problem, even if the property never even ever cash flowed. So the as the underwriter, so I, I worked for a credit unit at that time, they looked at it two ways. Would the property cash flow? Yes, it probably would. Or was the area he was in because it wasn't a hood, right? And so it's one of, and so when, when you get into these commercial developments like that, those first in are always the hardest, right? So what kind of risk are you willing to take on that? And so instead of looking at the property itself, they looked at the disposable income or the cash flow of the, the owner, the developers, other properties, other income to see if he would be able to pay that if that property took two years to get off the ground and never even cash flowed. And so that's how they underwrote that. So you just got to come up with your criteria of 
you know, you may not want to invest in some other type of deals. So you got to, what type of deals do you want to invest in? What type of people you want to invest in? Do they have a track record? Are they just getting started? What area of the city are they? Is it an improving area or are you trying to effectively have some property be an economic driver or provide a variety of housing options for the neighborhood? So I would, I would start there. There is a question from Radia Rhodes, which I think Kendra is appropriate for you to answer. And she wants to know what is the best way to find a real estate investment mentor? So this might be a good chance for you to talk a little bit more about the key real estate and the things that you do there. Yeah. So I guess a mentor and like a coach are two different things. I mean, you can go online and take classes and get eBooks and you can get coaching. Coaching is something I used to do before I started focusing solely on this book where I would have one-on-one coaching sessions and things like that. So one-on-one coaching session is like a one-off thing. When I think of a mentor, I'm thinking like a long-term relationship. For me, finding a mentor is about finding a mutually beneficial relationship. If someone wants to do a coaching session with me, they can just find me online. If I have it available, pay the fee and, you know, I'm giving of myself and my knowledge and, you know, they're able to benefit from that. But a mentorship relationship to me is something that's a lot deeper. And it's, you can't just walk up to somebody and be like, hey, I want to learn real estate. And they're going to take time to like mentor you for a year. But it's like, how can you add value? How can you network and get in the rooms and show people that you also add value and then create a mutually beneficial relationship, which I guess is not really an easy answer, but that's just how I view mentorship. So coaching and mentorship would be two different things. But if you're looking for like a coach, I know plenty of people that are doing coaching right now. You can DM me at, at the key resource on Instagram. I don't personally offer coaching right now because I got to get this book in y'all's hands <laughs> so and then start on the next one. But yeah, thank you. So I'm going to have to take a page from you about logging on somewhere and uh, paying a fee for a session because you will not believe how many calls, emails of requests for help I get. I was in the middle of trying to get some work out today and someone called, Kim, I need to talk to you. I'm like, I handed my cell phone to Jamitri. I'm like, you got it. <laughs> handle this because I had you like you said you had you're concentrated on something you have to get some work out the problem is is that you know you you're a unicorn I recognize I'm a unicorn sometimes and people they they see that and they just want to clean and half the time I'm like why are you asking me I don't know everything I'm trying to do my own stuff you know (laughs) trying to make it myself half the time what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna mention some other folks that I know who do I guess it's more coaching and mentoring as, as Kendra would say so I have a friend named Michelle Delia, and she works with the housing joint venture with her husband. And they're out of Columbus, Ohio. So they have coaching, they have coaching sessions that they do with folks there and you can find them online. And I actually have a prior discussion with her and you can find that on the Entrepreneurial Appetite YouTube channel or on the podcast. I'm also, I did a masterclass with Julian Gordon called the Multifamily Movement. And so I've done that and me and my wife have gone through, going through those learning modules and whatnot. And we're working towards getting our first multifamily unit. And so I think a lot of times what some people are doing who are in these these real estate coaching, mentoring groups is that they build community. And so what happens is as you get into one coaching group, you have access to the other people who are in that community of folks. And so that's one of the things that I like about Julian Gordon's multifamily movement. And so I think if you find people, you reach out to folks on Instagram as Kendra did, she gave them a platform to talk about what they do. And I think that was some something that was mutually beneficial. If you all want to support the the real estate foundation at AMT, Kim, is there a way for people to make donations to that? Or is it just so 
if you if you typically make a donation to the university, you have to specify that you are giving this money to the North Carolina Anti Real Estate Foundation, so it goes directly to us. However, we are one of my goals is to create a fund to have alumni and others be able to invest into the real estate foundation's future projects. So you will essentially have equity in any other mixed use commercial development that we will do on East Market Street. So I just need to get this first phase of this development project. I get a shovel in the ground. Once I'm able to do that, I can start working on the other visionary things that I have for the real estate foundation. My hope is to get be able to get that shovel in the ground by January. So in about six months, but that is something that has come to us over and over and over again, not only from alumni, but we held a um, community, I held a community advisory committee session for about six, seven months in 2019. And that was one of the things that came out of from the community is to start funds. So investors, mm-hmm. particularly black investors could invest in commercial real estate developments in East Greensboro that will benefit us. Oh, Langston, one thing I was going to say, this is almost one of the most important parts. We're talking about mm-hmm. a I have committed for $10,000 worth of scholarships to a students from the sales of the Acres book. And so not only are you supporting, spreading the word about Black wealth, but this is also going straight back to students, which really, I don't know if you guys are spiritual on here, but this is a God thing for me because I, I haven't even made a dime on the book at all. And I'm on the book and I'm already committing to give $10,000 of, of money that I have not made to a students because I believe so strongly in giving back. I remember being an A&T, being in line with my full scholarship, getting my free books. And there was this girl in front of me who her and her mom were literally scraping pennies and dollars out of their purse to pay for her books and had to put some back. They're crying. And I'm like, wow, I'm so privileged with my scholarship. I want to make sure that when I get to a point that I can give back so that someone else doesn't have to sit and cry about three books. Like, can you imagine? And so that's always been something I wanted to do. This book, I pray, will put me in a position to give back. And so if you support, you're also giving back to A&T students as well. I really appreciate chatting with you guys tonight. Thank you for joining this edition of Entrepreneurial Appetites Black Book Discussion. If you like this episode, you can support the show by becoming one of our founding 55 patrons for access to our live discussions, or you can subscribe to the show, give us five stars, and leave a comment. In our next episode, join us for a discussion between Demonte Alexander, founder of the Black Equity Pack, and Dr. Cheryl Layard, assistant professor of government and politics at the University of Maryland College Park and co-author of Steadfast Democrat, How Social Forces Shape Black Political Behavior.